Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dohop. Dohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to the 200th episode of Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'm thrilled to be hosting this landmark episode with you, Ben Baldanza. You've been the one here from the beginning for all 200, and 200 really is a significant milestone. MASH celebrated 200 episodes, so did Chicago PD and Cheers, and don't forget Blacklist and RuPaul's Drag Race. 200 is an achievement of audience acceptance and support. So we are very grateful to you, our listeners. We're very grateful to our sponsors. And we're very grateful to Charlie Shapiro and Deborah Shapiro, our behind-the-microphone producer and editor and supporter. Congratulations, Ben. Airlines Confidential has outlived many airlines. Well, thank you, Scott. And thank you for being part of this. You know, back when we conceived this idea... There were two models in mind. One was the NPR show Car Talk. Uh-huh. And Car Talk, if you remember, was a funny show that you could listen to once in a while and always enjoy it. But if you listened over time, you got smarter about cars, too. Yeah. And so we thought a show about airlines that could each stand independently. But if you listened over time, you get smarter about the way airlines ran would be a good idea. The other model was the ESPN show, Mike and Mike. In that show, they paired an actual player in Mike Golick, who played in the NFL, with a reporter, Mike Greenberg, who had covered sports for many years. And the play between the two of them was a very Felix and Oscar kind of thing. Yes. And that was an interesting idea, too. So the idea was a show that wouldn't be a ripoff of either of those two, but be kind of based on that. Two people who could talk about an industry that we really love, but also be smart, not have a show about just getting a cheap fare or how to use your miles well, but smart about the things that really drive the industry. So I'm so excited to get to this 200 and that the market, meaning all of our listeners, have accepted this idea and that there are other geeks, not just you and me, Scott, who really <laughs> like this industry and like to talk about it. That's fascinating, Ben. I actually didn't know that. I loved both of those shows. So if we can get anywhere near close to either one of those, uh, that's, that's really fantastic. Well, that's great. And we're also thrilled, Scott, to have Doug Parker, the former chairman and chief executive of American Airlines, join us on our 200th episode. Over the past 20 years or so, no one has been more impactful for the airline industry than Doug. He saved airlines, merged airlines, and went from running a small carrier to the world's largest carrier. Now that he's retired from American, we have a lot to talk about. Ben, I always learn something when I talk to Doug, and I think listeners will be engrossed in this conversation. Doug is, in many ways, as important a leader as the airline industry has ever had. He has a lot to say about airlines, about leadership, about the role of companies in today's world, 
and about the state of air travel. I think we're in for a fascinating conversation. But first, the news. The devastating wildfires on Maui prompted an unprecedented airlift there, with airlines making extra trips to help evacuate tourists and residents. Hawaiian led the way, of course. CEO Peter Ingram, who's a fellow Duke grad I know and a terrific leader, made sure the local airline, which is considered part of the social fabric of Hawaii, helped as much as it could. Hawaiian ferry flights moved hundreds to Oahu at $19 fares. Southwest, which is Hawaiian's competitor for intra-island service, did the same. American, Delta, United, Alaska, along with Hawaiian and Southwest, ferried stranded tourists to the mainland and flew in supplies and relief workers. The airline response was significant and smoother than I recall from other natural disasters. Airlines reacted quickly, both by locking fares so we didn't see reports of astronomical walk-up prices being charged to refugees, and by getting extra flights into and out of Maui. That isn't always the norm, but I think the industry is much more responsive now, and its leaders understand its responsibilities, especially when it's an island community affected. In this case, there was an added advantage since the disaster didn't knock the airport out of service. A personal note, I spent time on Lahaina last December, and like the rest of us, was completely heartbroken, not only by the loss of life, but also by the loss of livelihood in the restaurants and galleries of Front Street. I flew over that area in a Cirrus with Lawrence Balter of Maui Flight Academy. Note to pilots, Lawrence is a terrific instructor and tour guide, and my flight all around Maui and over to Molokai, Pearl Harbor, and Oahu was a total thrill. Highly recommended. And when the recovery begins, I'll be back. One other Maui note quite unrelated. The National Transportation Safety Board released its report on a United Airlines incident we talked about before on Airlines Confidential. You'll recall it was part of a string of close calls that prompted industry-wide safety reviews. The NTSB cited crew failure as the cause of a rapid descent of the 777 from 2,100 feet to just 748 feet above the ocean after takeoff from Maui in December last year. The crew recovered and continued on to San Francisco. After takeoff with flaps set at 20 degrees, the NTSB said the captain called for flaps five, but the first officer heard flaps 15. The aircraft was in instrument meteorological conditions, heavy rain and turbulence and wind shear. The maximum operating speed indicator shifted to a lower speed than the captain anticipated because flaps were further extended than he realized. So he pulled back on the throttles to avoid what's called overspeed, going faster than allowed for that flap setting. With less thrust, the plane's nose started to lower. The captain noticed flaps set at 15 and again called for flaps 5. That reduced lift lowered the nose more and the plane accelerated as it descended. With ground proximity warning system alerts blaring, the crew recovered. The NTSB cited crew miscommunication as the problem. United said that as a result of this incident, it has modified one of its training modules and is using the incident in an awareness campaign with pilots. We learn from these episodes, and that's what makes flying so safe. Well, Scott, let's first talk about Lahaina. What a terrible situation there. And I'm proud of the fact that this industry could play a positive role in getting people out. But there's going to be years of recovery there and lots of lives and infrastructure that has to be rebuilt. Hawaii is an important state in this country It's an important tourist destination, and rebuilding that from those fires is going to be a very important effort that's going to take everyone on the islands, but a lot of people on the mainland too. In terms of the United flight, 
I agree with you that this is what makes flying safe when things don't go as we expect, but we learn from them, revise training from them, everyone gets smarter. And that's why the industry works. That's why the industry is safe. And that's why pilots who are so professional in what they do always contribute towards helping us get smarter when things like this happen. Ben, I think it's really important to remember that that self-disclosure is part of the safety steps. Uh, it was important that the crew reported this incident. They didn't report it right away, uh, but they did report it. And it's really important that pilots are willing to expose their mistakes to the world anonymously as it should be, uh, but in a way that we can all learn from those situations that other pilots haven't encountered yet. That's right, Scott. Very early in my days at Spirit, when I would fly, I would always introduce myself to the crew and I would ask two questions. I would say, how are you feeling today? And then I would say, do you know how to file a safety report? Because I wanted them to know from me that filing safety reports were important, that they're not going to get you in trouble. That's what's going to make the airline and the industry safer. Yeah, absolutely. That was a, that's a great practice, Ben. I hope everybody hears that and adopts that. On another news note, Scott, Southwest will begin offering free standby same-day flight changes on its cheapest fares that they call the want-to-get-away fares that used to be available just to people with status in the Southwest loyalty program or travelers using more expensive fares. It's an interesting move, I think, and it's driven, I think, by overall simplicity. There was probably some issues caused when some people could get same-day standby and others couldn't, and that probably caused some conflicts at gates and put the gate agents in a difficult position but I also think it's a reality of the new world where more people are traveling on leisure. And so to make it simpler and to allow same-day standby is simpler. Also, with fewer people flying for business, the likelihood that a business passenger is going to buy a want-to-get-away fare and then stand by for free is still pretty small. And even if it happens, the difference between that fare and what they would have paid is smaller than it has been. Yeah, I think that's right, uh, Ben. I think it's a, as much a reflection of Southwest higher load factors. Um, years back, you know, I remember uh, Herb Gallagher was insistent that um, if if you were a business customer and you bought a cheap evening fare, you had to fly on that cheap evening flight. Um, if you wanted to stand by for an earlier flight in the day, you had to pay the the unrestricted walk up fare for for that earlier flight. Um, they just weren't going to allow people to game the system. When load factors were at sixty percent. There was really no problem in standing by, right? You could buy the cheap nighttime fare and and uh, stand by for a daytime flight. So Southwest made you pay the fare difference. Now the flights are so full, there are no guarantees that you can get a flight standby. And business travelers really can't play that game with certainty like they used to be able to. And as you say, there are just fewer business travelers and less likely to buy the one and get away fare to begin with. Plus, it may benefit the airline to pack people on earlier flights during the day. I applaud the move. One other Southwest note, 
And I think this was interesting, Ben. I got an email offer from Southwest last week that was essentially a 25% off coupon for flights August 25th through August 27th. Very specific, right? 25th, 26th, 27th. That's the weekend before Labor Day weekend. If we think domestic travel really is softening as summer ends, this is an interesting sign of booking weakness. It is, and it's interesting that that coupon was so targeted to one weekend. Barry Biffle, the CEO of Frontier, who I hope most of you heard when Scott interviewed him in Miami, used to have a funny statement. He would say, competitors who think my fares are too low haven't seen my book load factor. And so that weekend certainly must have looked like a problem. So they tried to be very surgical. And you got the coupon. I'm wondering if it was a broad-based thing or whether you, Scott, are in a special group of people based on your flying behavior that got you that coupon. Yeah, I wondered the same thing, and it, and the timing was was curious. I'm sure that's when they they you know came up with the promotion. Uh, but I had just booked a trip on Southwest for the following weekend for Labor Day weekend. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure it was all that specifically targeted. It may have been targeted to uh, Dallas frequent flyers. I am a list on Southwest. So that puts me in a category. I have the credit card that puts me in a category. There may have been lots of reasons why I got that coupon, but, uh, I thought, you know, gee, if they had really been paying attention and they can't pay attention to each individual customer, but, um, I'm not sure I'm, I'm the prime candidate for that since I just booked a trip for the following weekend. Well, maybe they thought you'd take a quick trip to see a friend the week before. Yeah, yeah. Not a bad idea. Well, Airlines Confidential is sponsored by Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, They are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. We also want to thank Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, from lower costs, and from maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Doohop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P. And now let's welcome Doug Parker to the show. Doug Parker was the longest serving airline chief executive of our time and certainly one of the most impactful. He saved airlines, built airlines, and drove a lot of the consolidation that has led to greater financial stability for the airline industry and longer reach for surviving airlines. He was CEO of American Airlines for a decade after he merged America with U.S. Airways which he ran after merging U.S. Airways with America West. He became CEO of America West just 10 days before the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks and led that carrier through the crisis. I first met Doug at America West, which he had joined after four years at Northwest Airlines. Prior to joining Northwest, he held a number of financial management positions with American, where Ben first met Doug. Since retiring from American, Doug has joined the board of its Australian partner, Qantas. Doug, it's a thrill to have you join us, especially since it's our landmark 200th podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be on the 200th, particularly with two friends. I appreciate it. Well, great to hear you, Doug. What an amazing career you've had. 
Tell us why you were drawn to the airline industry initially and how you ended up being CEO of the world's largest airline. <laughs> well, thanks, Ben. Well, as you know, and I think this guy just kind of said, you know, you and I started at American within weeks of each other. I just graduated, got my MBA at Vanderbilt, and I was looking for a job, frankly. Unlike you, um, I didn't have a, a huge background in aviation. I wasn't one of these people that um, studied airlines per se, but I, I had an MBA in finance, and I wanted to go work somewhere where finance mattered. So airlines certainly fit the bill there. Um, and American came to campus. I interviewed. Uh, they invited me back to Dallas, um, and I really enjoyed the people I talked to there. So that's that's where I started, um, and you know, ended up working with people like you and amazing people at American. I, I quickly, I, I, you know, I, I left after about five years. Went to Northwest through a, a fairly difficult time there in the early '90s, and then and then as Scott described, uh, America West Airlines as CFO in '95, CEO of America West 2001, and uh, then we uh, did kind of these reverse mergers with um, America West to U.S. Airways in 05 and U.S. Airways to American in uh, 2013. And uh, I ended up being CEO of, of uh, Therefore of American in 2013. So, Doug, describe the state of the industry as you see it today. Where do you think we are as, as an industry? Oh, man. Um, it, I, I think, I don't know, I find where we are today just fascinating. Um, I've never seen a revenue environment, anything like this. I mean, it feels transformed. I know people are, we can, we can talk more about this um, as to whether it's, you know, something temporary or transformative, but it feels transformed to me in terms of, in terms of the revenue environment. And at the same time um, that that's going on, you have these supply constraints. So, you know, it's, um, like I say, it's, 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 it's fascinating a time as I've ever seen. It's probably harder than it's ever been to run an airline. So for the ops people, it's probably the toughest environment they've ever had. Um, but it may be as good as you've ever had for the CFOs. Um, it's just, huh. there's just, you know, when you have, a, when you have a constraints on supply and um, kind of just ever-increasing demand, it feels like, or certainly record high demand um, and, and potential for much higher as business comes back more. Um, it seems like a really good formula for um, certainly for the financials. Just before we go on, I'm curious about the ops question. Is it, is it the intensity of the storms that we've seen, um, the the failings of the air traffic control system, the the size of airlines, the concentration around hubs? Uh, what? How do you see the ops challenges? It's infrastructure. You know, so a lot of what you said, but in one word, it's infrastructure. There's just not enough infrastructure in place to handle the existing demand. Um, and that, that's not just passenger demand. That means demand for, that means the demand the airlines have to add flights. Uh, I think every airline's flying fewer airplanes right now than they'd like to. Um, that's, not, that's never happened before. So, so it's a combination of a lot of the things you said, there's not enough there, you know, we're, we're you know, gates are all taken at airports. Uh, it's ATC is the biggest one. I mean, you just can't, you know, you can't keep flying airplanes into the Northeast and expect, you know, to be able to run a good airline. And there's a lot of demand to fly in and out of the Northeast. Pilots are an issue. Air traffic controllers are an issue. Airplanes themselves are an issue. All these things are coming together at the same time. And I don't think it, I don't think it ends um, anytime, in the, certainly not in the near future and maybe ever. I mean, it's just, I think we've gotten to the point, certainly in the U.S., where if you don't, you know, we're not going to build a bunch of new airports. And, um, you know, there is, there's, there's, um, and and what we, so therefore you see airplanes looking for bigger aircraft um, and those bigger airplanes you know you know you can't get a new airplane anymore um, at least you know I don't know I, I was told the other day if you want if you want to order an A321 if you want an A321 today and you approach Airbus they're going to tell you you can have one in 2029 whoa so, yeah and again I'm not, I'm not, they may Airbus may come back and tell me I'm not accurate on that but that's, that's what somebody told me so Say it's 2028. I mean, it's years until you can get airplanes these days. So those those are not insignificant issues. Uh, and at the same time, the revenue is is um is coming back in a way we've never seen before. Hmm. Doug, you were at America West when 9/11 happened, kind of thrown into the fire there, and then you were at American for the pandemic. Did the first disaster help prepare you at all for the second? 
Oh, yeah, I, I'm sure it did. Um, you know, there's, there's it's a whole career in between there that I think helped prepare as well. But yeah, it, it, as 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 the pandemic came about, there's no doubt that I was reflecting back upon 9-11. It felt a lot like it early on. In reality, it was much worse in terms of the severity to travel for, to, to demand for travel, of course. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, no, so as, as we started working as an industry, it felt very, very similar. Um, Others of the CEOs uh, had been around, of course, for 9-11. I think I was the only one who was CEO at 9-11. So it, it, and it matters a little bit. People like Gary Kelly, who was CFO then, Brad Tilden, who I think was a CFO then, were helpful. But yeah, you just pull back on, um, you know, kind of what got you through. I Frankly, because of that, I, I was, from the beginning, quite certain we were going to get this resolved. It was just, it, you know, we had done nothing wrong. The, the, our, our teams had done nothing wrong. Um, the industry had done nothing wrong. Unlike 9-11, where there was at least an argument that, hey, the industry was in trouble and maybe a couple airlines should go away, no one said that about the pandemic. That was either the industry is going to shut down or we're all going to shut down uh, or we're not. So all that led me to be, you know, again, it was it was stressful, but certainly never thought, okay, we're not going to get this resolved because the stakes were too high. And I think, um, yeah, and 9-11 helped me come to that conclusion. I saw how our government responded in a similar circumstance, uh, when when the uh, commercial aviation system was at risk, uh, this seemed even more uh, compelling because it was the entire aviation system. And um, yeah, so we, we pulled on some of those lessons and, and uh, fought together as a team. The, the biggest thing we did, frankly, is we worked together with labor, uh, which we didn't really have to do during 9-11 to get it done. I mean, again, it's not really fair. Labor, of course, was, was huge in that um, as well. But um, it was more so in this case, um, just because our politics are more divided now. So as we had to keep fighting, um, we, we, needed, we needed help on both sides and our labor unions were extremely helpful as well. Interesting. So you've long been a fan of consolidation as a way to make the industry more efficient and more profitable. How much more consolidation does the industry need now? Yeah, okay, look, I, what, I, what I was a proponent of was consolidating seven hub and spoke carriers back in whatever, 2004. Uh, into something much more efficient. Um, and that's happened. Uh, those seven carriers uh, are now three. Um, that was, you know, America West, Northwest, U.S. Airways, Continental, Northwest, I said Northwest, Continental, uh, United, Delta, and American. Um, those seven carriers are now combined into United, Delta, and American. That's what we needed to do. Uh, that was that was the core problem with the industry. Um, hub and spoke carriers need scale. Scale matters in a hub and spoke system. Um, and when you have seven of them doing it inefficiently um, and something three can do incredibly, intensely competitively against each other, uh, but much better, uh, that's just a better model. Uh, it's not, it wasn't about reducing seats. Indeed, if you add up the, the seats of those seven airlines, um, you know, in 2004 and compare them today, they're much, much higher uh, at the three airlines combined than the, than the seven of them were. Um, and, uh, but it was just about get, providing utility to customers and making it more efficient for the airlines to serve those customers. So that's what needed to happen. Um, and, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important distinction to me because we, we, it gets called consolidation and people just think, okay, that means there should just be fewer airlines. That's not what it was. There were too many hub and spoke airlines to be efficient. Um, so what that means now, we're done. Um, those seven became three. Those three will never become two. And the consolidation of the hub and spoke airlines in the United States is done. It should happen around the world, probably, but um, certainly in Europe. But it doesn't need to happen anymore in the United States. That doesn't mean there won't be more consolidation in the United States. I mean, you're seeing it with uh, what I would call more tactical um, sort of consolidation, like Spirit JetBlue. Um, and there may be others uh, like that in the future, but they're not nearly as important um, to the health of the industry. Those are, those are much more kind of, uh, like I say, tactically important to those individual airlines. Uh, but they're not going to they're not going to change the industry like um, the consolidation of the hub and spoke carriers was able to do in the in the mid to early 2000s. That's a terrific analysis, Doug. Thank you. And ben. I think you're exactly right. Now, I also think you'll agree with me that early in our career, one of the best things about American was working with so many smart people. So through your career, who are the biggest role models that helped you? 
Yeah, thanks. And and, and uh, yeah, if people don't know, Ben and I were lucky. And that, that really was an amazing group we all joined. Within a couple of years, you and I started within weeks of each other. Craig Krieger was there, who ended up running Virgin Atlantic. David Cush, who ran Virgin America. Tom Horton, who ran American. I'm sure I'm forgetting some. Um, and those, all of us joined within a year of each other. Um, it was just an amazing group of people to work with. So uh, I've had the benefit of working with all sorts of really smart people, all of whom have made a difference on uh, and had an impact on what I on what I've you know what I do. And I I try I think like all of us to to learn from everybody you're working with because um, and to make yourself better. And I've certainly been able to do that. But I'll tell you, if you ask me, the the biggest is somebody I never even worked with or for, and that was Herb Kelleher. Um, I got to know Herb once I became CEO of America West. I knew him a little bit before that, but once I was CEO of America West, I actually ended up doing between industry lobbying and some industry events, uh, becoming really good friends with Herb. And I would just follow the guy around and try and figure out, learn everything I could through osmosis. Um, He was, as brilliant as everyone says, really helpful to me till the end. Um, and I still, you know, well, again, while I was working, I was relying on herb lessons all the time. He was uh, just just phenomenal at what he did. Most importantly, I think, you know, that doesn't get mentioned enough is what an amazing listener he was. That guy would just, he would sit and engage with anyone and truly listen to them. And that's how he learned. And, he, and he'd use that and he'd bring it back into the airline. And anyway, I'm 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 not I've never got myself close to as good as it is he was, but I sure worked at it hard because I saw how good he did it, how well he did it. Hmm. Fascinating, Doug. You've often talked about a pivotal moment in your career when you were flying home from Washington to Phoenix after being rejected for government loan guarantees after 9/11. It meant you'd have to shut down America West. You explained this to a flight attendant who told you no. That couldn't happen. She was a single mom who needed that job and flexible hours to raise her kid. And she said, what are you going to do? And that moved you, I I think, as you've described it, from despair to action. And you ended up saving the airline and her job. It reminds me of the responsibility of CEOs. And that responsibility has expanded to speaking out on employees' behalf on social issues from gun control to voting rights to Black Lives Matter. How do you see the role of the CEO today in corporate America? Yeah, thanks, Scott. Um, yeah, and look, and the, only thing I, the, only, the only thing I also add to that story that it, is that before I went and talked to that flight attendant, I mean, we, we were, we, I thought we were going to liquidate America West Airlines. Um, we've been told no by the U.S. government. Uh, in terms of our request for a loan guarantee, and I was sitting up in my seat worrying about, woe is me, what am I going to do now? Um, I'd been CEO for a few months, and I was going to have a liquidation on my resume. And I went back and talked to this flight attendant. And um, anyway, that's that's the story to me, is is the role of the CEO is to, is to make sure that you're taking care of those that are in your care. Um, she needed me. I, I was going to be fine. She needed me to make sure that she had a job. Um, she was doing her job perfectly well, but she didn't have control over whether she was going to have a job or not. Management does. And as leaders, that's, I think, that's the job, that's the role of CEO is to ensure that you are doing everything you can. And generally, it involves fighting for your team. So that, you know, that helped me more than anything. Uh, once, I, once I figured that out, that's when all this, you know, that's when I got to be CEO of USA or CEO of American because we had to get those people to Safe Harbor and the drive to get those people to Safe Harbor led us to do, you know, to just not stop fighting for transactions because we knew we had airlines that were too fragile to survive in a, in a, in an environment that wasn't, was in fact consolidating. So that's, that's, um, that's that story. What it means today, um, you know, on an issue that you rise raise, I think it's exactly the same point. You know, when, if you're the CEO of a company in Texas and, um, there are laws being written that disenfranchise a, a, an entire part of your of the community of people that work for you, uh, in this case, our black employees who are writing me saying, you know, this isn't right and we're based in Texas. You can do something about this. Please do. I think you, I think you have an obligation to do so. It's, it's not going and getting involved in politics for the sake of politics. It's fighting for your team. And when you look at the issue and realize, oh, indeed, oh, yes, that, this, I can see exactly why they feel this way. Um, and we do have an ability to, to say something about it. We should. Not only should we, I think, I think we didn't have a choice. We had to. 
Um, that's what I think you have to do. Otherwise, I don't know how you feel like you're fighting for your team. Doug, that kind of proactive leadership is why you've been so great. And I think that's a great lesson for anyone running any company today. Thanks, man. Doug, one of the industry's bigger initiatives is to be net neutral for carbon emissions by 2050. But let me ask, do you think investors and customers would care if the industry misses this? Oh, I, I do. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 what, 27 years from now, but it sure feels like they will. I mean, people care now. And um, what I believe, you know, we're, we are a hard to mitigate industry, but other industries are going to figure out ways to mitigate. And while aviation is whatever our percentage is now, I think 4% of carbon emissions, um, that number will grow if we don't do better. And as it gets bigger, um, I think people will become more and more concerned. So I don't know. I, I don't know that I can actually look out to 2050 and know um, may, maybe because everyone else is mitigated, it's not as big an issue anymore, but I find that hard to imagine. So, yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's a real issue that we need to be incredibly focused upon and cognizant of. Um, and, you know, the longer it goes without real mitigation, the worse it's going to get. So it leads a little bit into the next question. What's the proper role of the federal government as it relates to commercial airline service? Well, yeah, well, look, I think in a, in a capital society, the, the one of the primary goals of federal government is just to make sure commerce can operate. Um, and what that, in my view, what that largely means is just stay out of the way. Um, you know, make sure you're enforcing antitrust laws, uh, make sure that uh, there's, you know, in, in case of airlines, that there are safety regulations in place, et cetera, of course. But in large part, the federal government uh, should be doing everything it can to let commerce and global commerce in particular operate. So we have a little work to do there. Um, but as it relates to airline service, the federal government has a huge operational role in commercial airlines. They run our air traffic control system. It is arguably the most important part of operating the commercial aviation system that's run by the federal you government. Can't, you you can't move an airplane without permission from the federal government, from a federal government employee. I know. It's, so, yes. Yeah, so anyway, so when you ask about the proper role of federal government as it relates to commercial airline service, I mean, that's it. Please get the ATC system to run more efficiently. I don't think it's in the right spot. I'll, I, I, there are hardworking people that want, I think, that want to do the right things. Um, but it's a horrible governance system for investing in long term, um, you know, it's it, when you when you have to have FAA reauthorization every few years, uh, that doesn't lend itself to, to funding multi-billion dollar projects that are going to take 10 years. So it's a problem. But it, that's the biggest role. I mean, is is for our federal government and the FAA works fine that, you know, there's um, TSA works fine. Those are federal government organizations that have a lot to do with airlines. Um, but what doesn't work well is our ATC system. And it's not because of people, it's because of systems. Well, Doug, you've run kind of a small, niche carrier in America West and then ran the biggest airline in the world. Which is more fun? <laughs> which, which is more fun? That's a Ben question if I ever heard one. Um <laughs> All right. Yeah. And, and you've done both too, Ben, so you know. I lo they're both fun, um, is the political answer. Um, look, America West was 13,000 employees, one hub in Phoenix. You know, there's also, you know, where you are in your career at the time. It's kind of hard to keep out of this. But yeah, there's no doubt that when you're running a 13,000 person airline, versus a 130,000 person airline. You can get a better sense of the team and the people and particularly there's one hub. You know, I'd be flying back from, you know, Phoenix to DC and knew every crew member by first name um, and because I'd flown with him so many times. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. Unfortunately, it's too bad because it's fun. Um, you know, and those people, by the way, they'd founded that airline in 1983. So, you know, it was only less than 20 years old when I was doing this work around 9-11. Um, so the, the flight attendants that were flying that route, you know, founded the airline. They really cared about it. So there, there's a lot to be said for that. That was fun, um, you know, taking an upstart and making it bigger. But 
you know, it's it's not to say it's not fun running a larger airline as well. I mean, it is. And and indeed, um, what's not fun about being at a smaller airline is how the big airlines beat the crap out of you. <laughs> so, so getting out of that um, and actually having access to the, the ability to fly where you want to fly, when you want to fly, having, having capital, having some political, you know, having more than two senators you can talk to when you need some help uh, or when you need... Um, you know, when you need something from the from the federal government, um, all that stuff matters. So, look, I, 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 no complaints. I enjoy it all. But I mean, yeah, the, the, the smaller airlines, um, there's there's something there's something special about being uh, part of something smaller. You know, just just because of the size itself. Well, this has been great fun. We really appreciate you joining us, and uh, and look forward to many more conversations. I've enjoyed it, guys. Anytime. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Doug. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. And thanks again to Doug for joining us for a fabulous conversation. You know, Scott, Doug mentioned once or twice that he and I worked together early in our careers. Mm -hmm. And everyone around that environment at that time could see greatness in that guy. And it's so good to see what's happened. And now he can look back at an industry that he really helped create in terms of the way it's structured today. Absolutely. And I hope we keep hearing his voice because I think he's, he's so smart about um, not only air travel, but decency and employees and, and customers. And we need his voice. So I hope we, we continue to hear it. I totally agree. And Scott, our pen pal Joe from Victorville is first out of the mailbag this week. Hi, guys. Love the show. I was watching a TikTok about Frontier's year-long passes. What are the odds that it will fail, just like the AA lifetime flying passes? Well, Joe, I think Frontier knows about the AA passes. <laughs> if you remember, Alaska did something similar in California, not exactly the same. And Frontier has a lot of restrictions around these, but they're trying a lot of different price points. So I'm guessing the next 12 months is really a big experiment by Frontier to say, let's look at this. Let's look who buys it. Let's look how many people buy it. Let's see how much revenue it may dilute, meaning people buy the pass so they don't buy a more expensive holiday ticket. But since Frontier doesn't carry a lot of business travel, it's a pretty small risk. In Americans' case, someone who paid high fares as a business traveler could buy their annual pass and fly all year and not pay American the high fares that American would have charged them. Frontier doesn't really have that. So yes, they may offset another cheap fare, but not a big business fare. But I think we're going to learn how this really works next year at this time to see what they reintroduce and what it looks like compared to what they did this year. It's really interesting, Ben, when you look at the program, there's now four different passes, the annual pass, there's a summer pass, there's a fall and winter pass, and they most recently introduced a monthly pass. And, and one of the features is that they automatically renew and the prices that are posted for renewal are much higher than the first pass prices. Uh, so uh, the if you, I think the summer pass four ninety nine this year, I think it automatically renews for next summer at like nine ninety nine, something like that. 
those prices, you know, they they may post a different renewal price when we get around to renewing for next summer. Um, but I think they've protected themselves some with the higher renewal price, um, and that's something that the AA Lifetime Pass never had. Um, I think it's a cool way to get people used to flying Frontier. Try it, and they may like it, and and they may continue flying Frontier, whether it's on a higher price pass or just regular tickets. So good, good for them. I love the creativity. I do too, Scott. And you know, in Denver, they're in a big battle with both United and Southwest. Yeah. So doing things that differentiate them is great. And this is a program that I don't see either United or Southwest matching. Right, right. Very good. Okay, Ben, here's one for you from Peter from Connecticut. Hi, Ben and Scott. When an airline opens a new route, where do they start with pricing a ticket? Obviously, on a new route, there are probably some promotions going on, but I am asking more about it once it is up and running. Do airlines start with cost-based pricing? For example, if an A320 costs around $4,000 an hour to fly, and the flight is two hours, do they just divide $8,000 by the total number of seats to get the cost? Once they get the cost per seat, do they add a margin to make the floor of the fare level? Or do they just look at the historical cost per available seat mile and make an assumption about this new route? Also, Ben, just curious, when you were at Spirit, why did you pick the IAE engines over the CFM for the A319s? Thanks, guys. Well, I'm eager to hear more about pricing from you, Ben. My impression is that new route or old route, pricing is determined by demand and not cost. Airlines want to fill seats to get whatever they can. If they price tickets too high for a market, they'll have empty seats. Too low, they can fill every seat but leave revenue behind. So it's always a tricky balance, maybe especially harder in a new market where you don't have historical references. How did you approach new market pricing? This is a great question. And thank you very much, Peter, for this. You know, there's not a lot of new pricing that goes on. The reason I say that is just because a market isn't flown nonstop doesn't mean there aren't existing prices. Let's pick a route that likely doesn't have a nonstop trip in it. Let's say Burlington, Vermont to Greensboro. I'm guessing no one flies that nonstop. Maybe someday Breeze or Allegiant or even Delta might, right? But that doesn't mean that there are lots of fares and lots of history about what people pay to board a plane in Burlington and get off in Greensboro because you can go by connecting in New York, Philly, Washington, Charlotte, Atlanta, and probably other ways. So in most cases, unless the city is getting its first ever air service, there's usually a long history of what prices the market will pay. Now, if you're adding a new nonstop trip and no one else flies it nonstop, you're going to have to test whether the market will pay more for a nonstop trip than connecting. For some customers, they probably will. For others, they may not. So it's a real interesting thing. In pricing, it's basically a 90-day business. By that, I mean most prices don't last much more than 90 days. So it's a great place to test and try lots of things. So if you start a new route, you're going to base your initial prices, maybe with some promotion, like you said, based on the historical prices in that market. But then over time, you'll see what your service can command. And that may change 
by time of day, by day of week, or by time of year. I hope that helps. There's another economic reality that gets to Scott's point about pricing being determined by demand and not cost. Airlines have very high average costs. Airplanes are expensive. Fuel is expensive. People are expensive. Airports are expensive. So if you take the total cost of an airline divided by the seats that airlines fly, it's always high. But marginal costs are low. What I mean by that is if my airline has a flight leaving in four or five hours, but there are 20 empty seats on it, the incremental costs I will pay to put someone in that seat versus have it empty is literally single-digit dollars. So the reality is pricing in this industry, like most industries, is driven by that marginal cost, not the average cost. That's why when the industry has too many seats in the market, pricing always drops. And when the industry has fewer seats than the market demands, prices always rise. I hope that helps, Peter. Ben, that's a great explanation of, of why we pay what we pay to fly. Thank you very much for that. And how about Peter's second question? International aero engines for Spirits A319s over engines from CFM International? That's another good question. And unfortunately, I didn't make that call at Spirit. <laughs> the reason I say that is when I got there, they already had an order for 319s and 321s with IE engines. So that decision had already been made. But I will say, Peter, that I supported that decision. I think IE made a great engine. The fact that it was a partnership between two big manufacturers and they were building sort of their competitiveness to GE gave the A320 family, I think, an edge over the 737. Because when you buy the 737, you get GE engines. When you buy the A320, you can have a separate negotiation with then IE, today Pratt, and GE. And my sense was at least in that time when IE was in business that you could make a really good decision around both the engines and the plane. So while I didn't make that call at Spirit, I supported it. Excellent. Well, that's all for the first 200 episodes of Airlines Confidential. Special thanks to Doug Parker for making it a truly memorable show. Have a great week, everyone. And thanks to all our listeners for getting us to 200 shows. And we hope to see all of you and more at show 300. We'll be back next week with more on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.